You can turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We will be getting back into our series through the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. And Lord willing, we will continue on until we get to the end of the book. As we begin, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come before you once again and... We ask as your word is open now before us, as we seek your face in it, as we seek the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, we again ask that you would quiet our minds and our hearts, that you would fill us with your spirit and enable us to to see and to understand what you have for us to see here this morning in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. May you be with me as I seek to communicate it to your people. And may you use your word to to build them up, to draw them closer to yourself, and to behold Christ. Also, may you open their eyes, their ears, their minds, their hearts, to see, to hear, and to, to receive your word with joy. Father, always with joy. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. What I want to do this morning, since we had a little break last week, is I want to, to orient our minds back around what we've been seeing in Ecclesiastes. And then I'll give a brief summary on what we saw a couple of weeks ago in the first part of chapter 7. And then I will show us where we're going to be going here in the latter part of chapter 7. And then we'll read the passage together and start walking through it. So whenever we began this book... Ecclesiastes, we saw that the preacher, or Solomon, the author of this book, who calls himself the preacher, began a quest on understanding reality. That's what he wanted to do. That's what his intention was and is throughout this book. He wants to understand reality as it is. You know, he's tired of the, the fantasy world that we tend as human beings, as sinful human beings, to create in our own minds. He wants to know the truth. And then he wants to communicate, he wants to preach it to the people of Israel who he was king over at the time of him writing this. And throughout the book we have seen many things. We've seen these observations and these personal experiences that the preacher himself has had. And overall, they've been sobering observations, sobering experiences. They've made us come to grips with what our world is really like, that it's broken, that it's filled with suffering, that it's filled with unhappiness. But as I was saying a couple of weeks ago, there's beauty here as well. And we've seen that sprinkled throughout the book. The beauty of our world. And whenever we came to chapter 7, verses 1 to 14, a couple of weeks ago, the midway point of the book, the preacher wanted to remind us that although our world is broken and horrible things happen and we can't explain it, there's mysteries, God is still in control. He's sovereign over all things. And for us to try and contend with Him, to argue against God about the way things are, it's, it's foolish. He said, 
Who can contend with one stronger than Him? Speaking about us. We can't contend with God. He's the stronger one. And then in light of that truth, that God is stronger than we are, that He is sovereign over all things, that we can't argue against Him, He asked two questions. How should we live now during our short lives? And then who can show us what will come after us in the coming days? Or who can tell us the, the future? And the answer to the first question we saw in verses 1 to 14, or excuse me, 1 to 12 of chapter 7. And in short, the answer was live wisely. Embrace a life of wisdom. That is what is good for you to do during your short life. Live wisely. And then in verses 13 to 14, he showed that although you can live wisely and it will help you during your life, it's limited. Your wisdom is limited. Solomon's wisdom is limited. And so the answer was that no one can show you what's going to come afterwards. No one can show you what your life will be like tomorrow or the next day or so on. And that's what he meant whenever he said, consider the work of God who can make straight what He has made crooked. We cannot straighten in our own wisdom what God has made crooked. Now I want to make sure that we understand that when he says that God has made things crooked, he doesn't mean that God has created evil. God is not the one who brought evil into this world. Satan in our own sin is what brought evil into this world. And so the crookedness that he refers to is the punishment that God put on all of creation as a result of our rebellion, of our sin, of Satan's rebellion as well. God put things in our paths that we can't understand, that we can't explain. There are crooks, you could say, in our life that we have to deal with as a consequence of our sin. And so now as we come to verse 15 of chapter 7, the preacher is going to continue this theme. He's going to continue the theme of commending wisdom to us in our life, but at the same time he's also going to be showing us the limitation of that wisdom. So again, he's going to show us to live wisely, but he's also going to show us that the wisest thing you can do is to understand that your wisdom is limited and that the fear of God is the answer. And as we walk through verses 15 to 29, it's going to be broken up into two sections. From verses 15 to 23, that's going to be the first section. And the preacher there is going to be wrestling with the fact that, just to put it simply, good things happen to, or excuse me, bad things happen to good people. He's going to be wrestling with that and trying to seek wisdom in that area. And then beginning in verse 25 all the way down to verse 29, he's going to be wrestling with the sinfulness of the human heart, the depravity of mankind, of humankind. He's going to be searching for wisdom in that area. So let's read these verses together and then begin walking through them. So he begins in verse 15. 
In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So he begins in verse 15 by saying, In my vain life. Now remember, that word vain or vanity, he's not saying that his life is meaningless, that it has no purpose whatsoever. And if I know if you're reading the NIV version, then that's how it translates that word. And I'm not trying to talk bad about the NIV translation. I think it's a good translation, but I don't think it's very helpful that they translate havel, which is the Hebrew word, into meaningless. Because when you say meaningless, then you have to interpret that word in that way throughout the whole book. And if you want to hear more about that, you can go back to the first message where I dealt with that. But anyways, so he's not talking about his meaningless life, not in my meaningless life, but in his short-lived life. Remember the word means, it literally means breath or a vapor, a mist, something that's here one moment and then gone the next. And so that's what he's referring to here. His life is short. So in his short lived life. He says, I have seen everything. And whenever he says everything, he's referring back to what he said in verse 14, that he has seen or, or talking about the, the day of prosperity or the day of adversity. So whenever he says that he's seen everything, he's referring back to those two days, that he has seen them during his short-lived life. He has seen the day of prosperity, and he has also seen the day of adversity. Think about, and again, I'm not picking on the older generation here by saying this, but usually it's the older generation that says this. 
But whenever you do something uh, that, I don't know, maybe surprises them or whatever, they may respond in, well, now I've seen everything. You know, I, I've seen everything now. Well, that's kind of that's similar to what he's saying here. You know, he's seen everything. Not literally everything under the sun, like every event that would be impossible. To do that, you would have to be God. He's just referring to, like, you know, people we hear. He has seen enough to know what's going on in the world. And he's referring back to the day of prosperity and to the day of adversity. So he's seen both of them. And then he gives us an example. And an example that shows us, again in verse 14, that man cannot know what comes after him. That he may not find out anything that will be after him, as he says in verse 14. He says, there's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. So the picture, the example is this. There is a good man and he perished in his righteousness. And then you have the evil man in his wickedness, and he prospers. Now we wouldn't expect that, would we? We would expect the opposite. You know, that's not the way things are supposed to be. We would expect that the righteous man or the good man, he would prosper. And then the wicked man in his wickedness, you know, he would be the one who perished because that's what he deserves, right? You know, all of his wicked ways. He's the one who should face judgment, who should perish, who should suffer, who should have bad things happen to him. But what he's saying here is the opposite. You know, it's backwards. And so he's proving the point that he made in the first part of chapter 7, in verses 13 and 14, talking about how God has made things crooked. He's put crooks in our path, and this is one of those crooked things. We see this every day, do we not? Good things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to good people. Think about, and there's many examples of this, but one of them, you think about our government, people that are, who are in government, who have high authority position. You know, they prey on the weak, and they prosper for it. They live the good life while the people they prey on who are just innocent, hardworking people, you could say, who just want to make a living, they suffer. And so again, we would say that's backwards. You know, it needs to be the other way around. But so is the world that we live in. These are some of the crooks that we face in our path. Now, if our world was straight, like a straight road, then the good would prosper and the wicked would suffer. But it's backwards. Also, Christians are not spared from this. Christians also have crooks in their path. Think about all the Christian martyrs. People who were preaching the gospel, you know, doing the work of the Lord. And they died for it. Think about Stephen in the New Testament. He was the first Christian martyr preaching the gospel and they stoned him to death. They didn't want to hear it. Think about Paul, the Apostle Paul. He had his head chopped off for preaching the gospel. Think about the Apostle James. As church history tells us, he was thrown off a building for preaching the gospel. 
And then you have countless others throughout the Bible who suffered for the sake of the cross, for the sake of Christ. And again, that's crooked, is it not? They're doing the work of the Lord. They're trying to save people. They're trying to show them good news. And then they suffer for it. And then also Christians get sick. They die. They suffer. They have bad days, just like everybody else does. You know, we are not spared from the crooks of this fallen world. If you read Psalm 73, a psalm penned by Asaph, this is what he was wrestling with in his psalm. He has this, I can't remember how many verses it is, but he spends a good chunk of that psalm just talking about how the wicked are prospering while the godly are suffering. And he cries out to God, what's the point? Why have I been righteous? Why do I worship? Why do I seek your face if I'm going to suffer for it? What's the point? But then he goes into the house of God. He seeks God's face and he figures everything out. He knows that we are to not expect prosperity in this life, but in the life to come. And then the final example I want to give is the greatest example of all, our Lord Jesus Christ Himself, who was the only good person ever to walk the face of this earth. The only pure and righteous person. And what happened to Him? He suffered greatly. He was crucified. He faced great shame. And so we should take comfort in that because God Himself in Christ comes down and suffers for our sake. You could say that the Son of God Himself had a crook in His path that God Himself put there. So what is the preacher's response to this here in Ecclesiastes chapter 7? What does wise living look like in light of what he has just said. You know, the picture that he has painted of good things happening to bad people and bad things happening to good people. He says in verse 16, Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Now that's just one of those verses that after you read it, you're just like, what? That doesn't make any sense. You know, in light of the fact that even if you're righteous, even if you're wise, you're still going to suffer. And then he responds and says, well, don't be overly righteous. Don't be overly wise. And at the same time, don't be overly foolish. It, so it seems like on the surface when you read through that, that he's like, you just need to have a little bit of both. You know, have, just be a little good. You know, not too much. You don't be a goody two-shoes, you could say. And at the same time, don't be real foolish. You know, overly wicked. Just be a little foolish. You know, kind of put your feet on both sides of the line almost. It seems like what he's saying. Now that just contradicts everything else that the Bible says, does it not? 
Because the Bible always uplifts wisdom and it always uplifts righteousness. So what is he saying when he means don't be overly righteous and don't be overly wicked? Well, the key phrase that helps us to know is that he says, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. The one who fears God will escape being overly righteous and he will also escape being overly foolish or overly wicked. So what he means then is that overly righteous refers to self-righteousness, being puffed up in pride because you're righteous, you know, you're better than everybody else or you're wiser than everybody else, being puffed up in your own wisdom. And in being puffed up in your own righteousness, being puffed up in your own wisdom, you think to yourself, I'm too good to suffer. I'm too good for those bad things that happen to peons to happen to me. Think about the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They had a similar outlook of life. They were the righteous people in Jesus' day, you know, the, the religious leaders of that time period. And they thought that they were better because they were righteous. They thought that they were better because they were wise. But in reality, they were no better than anybody else. And then on the other side, the one who fears God will not abandon righteousness and wisdom completely when he finds out that he will suffer like everybody else. He doesn't completely abandon righteousness just to become a fool. No, he, he meets in the middle. He understands that wisdom is good, that righteousness is good, but at the same time he is humbled and he understands that he's just like everybody else and he will suffer just like everybody else. And that's what happens whenever you behold God, when you fear God. Because when you look at God and you reverence His glory, His holiness, you can't become self-righteous. And you also will not become completely foolish. Because neither one of those things are found in God. Paul also, the, the Apostle Paul also picks up in the, on this language in 1 Corinthians Chapter 3, now remember the Corinthians, they were puffed up in their pride. They were puffed up in their wisdom. God had given them great gifts and they were misusing them. They were lording it over other people. They thought that they were better than others because of the, the graciousness that God had showed on them and the gifts that they possessed. But listen to what Paul says to them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in verse 18, he says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So again, 
similar to what the author of Ecclesiastes is saying, he's not, he's not trying to tell us to be a fool. And Paul's not trying to tell them to literally become foolish so that you become wise. No, what he's saying is humble yourself. Realize that in and of yourself, in your sin, you are a fool. That's who you are in and of yourself. So realize that. And when you do realize that, then you will humbly accept the wisdom that God has so graciously given to you. That's what Paul means in his statement that he makes there to the Corinthians in their pride, in their sinfulness, in their boasting of their own righteousness and their own wisdom. So the same is here. Preacher saying, look to God, fear Him, and you will be in the middle of them both. You will have the middle ground, the good ground. And then in verse 19, he gives us a few proverbs that drive home his point. He says, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. That's the first proverb. And what he's showing there is the benefit of wisdom. Wisdom is beneficial. It's good to have wisdom. Because as he says, it gives strength to the wise man. More so than ten ten rulers who are in a city. So it's beneficial. And then he says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So you have that stark contrast right behind it. Wisdom is good. It's beneficial. But where's the righteous man at? Because as he says, surely there is no one righteous. There is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So he shows the benefit of wisdom and he smacks down the pride that that can so easily come up behind it. And then it's almost with the third proverb, it's like he's asking, you want proof? Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Because your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. So you want proof that you're not righteous? Examine your tongue. Because how many times have you cursed your neighbor? And how many times have they cursed you? Again, we see this picture portrayed in the New Testament. James, the Apostle James, he says in chapter 3, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. So such a small member of our bodies sets the whole world on fire, as James says in here. Now where did he get that picture from? He got it from Jesus. Because you remember what Jesus said about the tongue. Where does the mouth speak from? Why do your words come out of your mouth? Where does the emotion, where does the motivation of your words come from? They come from your heart. 
Jesus said in Luke 6, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So the reason why you can look at your tongue and see just how unrighteous you really are is because what comes out of your mouth first comes from your heart. Whatever is in your heart, you know, if you have garbage in your heart, then garbage is going to come out of your mouth. But if there is love and goodness and mercy in your heart, then love will come out. As Jesus says, the the evil person will produce bad fruit. The good person produces good fruit. And in and of ourselves, none of us will produce that good fruit because we're all wicked in our sin. In verse 23, the preacher now comes to his confession that although he can understand these things and he can commend wisdom to us, he can't completely understand them. And so he says, all this I have tested by wisdom. So he's tested these things with his wisdom. And he said, I will be wise. I will be wise in this area. But it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? So he confesses that although he can understand these things partially and he can give you good things to do, he can preach to you wisdom and show you good things to do during your life, a way to live your life well, there's still a limit. There's still some things that he cannot understand, that he cannot reach. And we see something similar in Job. And if you would, turn with me there to Job chapter 28. Now you guys remember Job because we've talked about him a few times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. These books are similar. They have similar themes running through them because they're both books of wisdom literature. And so here in verse in chapter 28, Job is seeking wisdom in his circumstances. Remember, he suffered greatly and he was innocent. He didn't really do anything wrong. And so he's trying to seek wisdom and he's trying to understand why he's suffering. Why would God bring these things on me? And so he goes about explaining his predicament in a very poetic way in chapter 28. And he starts saying that, he says things like, Surely there's a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. So he's talking about all these different places that you can go to and you can find these things there. Like if you go to a mine, you can find the gold and the silver. Man can go and he can find those things. And he names a bunch of other things that man can do. But then in verse 20 he says, From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. 
Abaddon and Death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. So man can't find it. He can, he can see some of it, but he cannot completely and exhaustively search out wisdom. But in verse 23 he says, God understands the way to it, and He knows its place. For He looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When He gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when He made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then He saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And He said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So you can't find wisdom. You cannot completely and exhaustively search out wisdom. It is impossible for us as human beings to do because God is the only one who knows all things and searches all things. Only God is the one who can search out wisdom. And so the preacher says, he says, I I sought to be wise, but it was far from me. That which was far off, it was deep, very deep. Who can find it out? And then in verse 25, as we come to the, the second part of this, this section of Scripture, he turns. He's turning now from observing or looking at or searching out wisdom in the area of good things happening to bad people and bad things happening to good people, trying to search out wisdom in that area. And now he's turning to, to search out wisdom in the area of human depravity. And depravity just means that we are marked by unrighteousness and wickedness. We are fallen creatures. So he's trying to understand and to search out wisdom in this area. He says, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things. It just means the, the explanation of things. That's what he means by scheme there. The explanation of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. So he's trying to understand these things. He's searching for wisdom in this area. And within his searching, he finds three things. First, he observes something that he says is more bitter than death. He says that the adulterous woman or the woman who seeks to lead men into sin, she is more bitter than death. Now this is a common theme that flows through the book of Proverbs. Solomon calls the adulterous woman Lady Folly, which is just kind of a, a portrayal of foolishness. And he often calls her the, the Lady of Folly. And he talks a lot about the adulterous woman. And he, he's telling his, his sons to avoid her. You know, don't be drawn in by her seductiveness because she's more bitter than death. To be ensnared by her, to be captured by her is more bitter than death itself because of the sin that's taking place there, the sin of adultery or the sin of, of sex outside of the marriage covenant that God has created. 
And remember, Solomon would have known this very well because he had how many women? A thousand of them. So he knows what this snare is like. He knows what the woman is like whose hands are fetters or bonds, like like cuffs. They seek to restrain you. He would have known this very well because those women led him astray. They ensnared his heart. So he's showing that to go that way, to be ensnared by that woman, the adulterous woman, it's more bitter than death in the end. As he says in Proverbs, her feet go down into death. They go down into the place of Sheol, into judgment, into sin, into sorrow. The second thing that he observes is that humanity is so sinful or so depraved, so fallen, that he can only find one man out of a thousand who cares about righteousness. So you have a thousand people that he's looking at, that he's observing. And he finds one man out of all these who just somewhat, cares about being upright. Because remember, as he said already, no one is righteous. There is no one who does good and never sins. So he just found one man who somewhat cares about it out of these thousand. And then he says, a woman I have not found. Now before we convict the preacher of being sexist, and you know, just harping on women, that's not what he's doing. Because as we were just looking at it, and as I just said, he's showing that all people are fallen creatures. And the whole Bible, for that matter, shows us that we are all sinners. It doesn't matter if you're a man, woman, or a child. You're sinful. You're broken. This is just his experience that he has seen, his search. Out of these people that he looked at, he found one man. So the picture is the utter depravity of mankind. That's the picture here. Not that man is better than woman or the other way around, but that we're all fallen creatures, that we're hopelessly sinful. Then the third thing that he observes is that God made man upright but they have sought out many schemes or inventions, as the the old King James Version would say. They have sought out many inventions. That word has a, a negative tone to it. So we have sought out negative things, unholy things, unrighteous things. And this verse is crucial for us to understand. Because it shows us that the reason why there is evil in this world is not because God put it here, as we were talking about a moment ago, because God made man upright, as He says in verse 29. God made them upright. As He says in the beginning of Genesis, He created all things, He put man and woman in the garden, and He declared it very good. They were upright. But they have sought out many schemes. We have. 
we have sought out many schemes. And this is the only thing that he is 100% certain on. Because he says, see, this alone I found. He puts the most weight on this observation. Because although he can't completely understand the other things that he has just shown us, he can understand this. And we can understand it as well. Because all we have to do is just look around. But also we need to remember that, as we were talking about a moment ago, that we're the ones that sought out these schemes. God didn't do it. We did. And we're hopeless in our schemes. You know, every man, woman, and child since Adam and Eve has done the same thing that they have. They have sought out these schemes. And without God intervening, we will always and hopelessly seek out these schemes to our own destruction. We're helpless. And the whole Bible shows us this. The whole Bible, throughout all of its history, shows that man, on his own, cannot straighten, as the preacher says, cannot straighten what God has made crooked. Or also, he cannot obtain righteousness on his own. He can't restore things on his own. We're hopeless in our schemes. And so God Himself is the one who must intervene. And that's what we see in Christ. When Christ comes down as a man, 100% man, 100% God, He enters into the, the crookedness of our world. Like we were talking about a moment ago, He had crooks in His own life. So He enters into those things. And then He dies. He's crucified for us. Because of our schemes, humankind schemed against God Himself, Jesus Christ. They schemed against Him, and they succeeded in their schemes. They killed Him. But through their schemes, God was victorious. Through the schemes of mankind, the salvation of all mankind came in. You could say that light broke through even in pitch black darkness. Now if you would turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Because again, Paul picks up on this whenever he's writing to the Roman Christians. The fact that sin has come from one man and all have sinned and they're helpless. But through Christ, the new man... Righteousness and new life has come. Beginning in verse 12, Paul writes, Therefore, now as I'm reading through this, he's going to be talking about the law of light. Now, what I want you to pay attention to is the comparison that he's making to Adam and then to Christ. Those are the main things I want you to look at as we go through these verses. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even 
over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, again Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through Adam and Eve, or through Adam the one man as Paul says, sin and unrighteousness and brokenness spread throughout all of humanity. But Christ, the new man, who enters in and defeats sin and destruction through the schemes of man, through Him righteousness comes to all men who have faith, all people who have faith in Him. So as Paul says there, Though sin spread throughout all of the earth, grace abounds all the more. Though we are wicked people, helplessly wicked in our schemes, God's grace in Christ, in the power of the gospel, is, to, is able to overcome those schemes, that wickedness. And so if you do not embrace Christ, then you will remain helpless in those schemes. Without Christ, you will be helpless and you will die helpless. But with Christ, God's grace overcomes and it abounds all the more even in our sin. Father, we come before you and again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises that are here for us to see. That although we are wicked, helplessly wicked, that we have sought out many schemes, your grace has abounded all the more in Christ Jesus. And that through the power of the gospel, we can be made whole. We can be restored. Oh, how we thank you for Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.